Support for the Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. When she was in New York and she was struggling for ways to pay her college tuition and pay rent, she literally wrote up a business plan for opening her own restaurant. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Let's talk about Zora Neale Hurston, writer, anthropologist, and foodie? Today, we'll dig into the role food played in the famous Floridian's life and work. Zora Neale Hurston was born in 1891 near Montgomery, Alabama, but her name is practically synonymous with Eatonville, the African-American enclave in central Florida that she considered home. Hurston wrote extensively about Southern Black life, both as an anthropologist and in her short stories, plays, and novels like Their Eyes Were Watching God. One subject that appears in Hurston's work again and again is food, so much so that my guest wrote a whole book about that. Dr. Fred Opie is a professor of history and foodways at Babson College outside of Boston, Massachusetts. He also hosts a podcast called The Fred Opie Show, and he's written a bunch of books, including Zora Neale Hurston on Florida Food, Recipes, Remedies, and Simple Pleasures. It details the role food played in Hurston's life and work, and it's a lens into Southern African-American foodways of the first half of the 20th century, complete with archival photos and recipes. Dr. Opie chatted with me about food customs during Hurston's time and lessons for today. So my name is Fred Opie, full name Frederick Douglass Opie, named after the abolitionist. So Frederick Douglass Opie, no pressure there, right? Well, a little pressure on everybody else. So there's three siblings. I'm the baby in the family. Um, my older brother, Marshall, 16 months older, is named after Thurgood Marshall, the Supreme Court Justice. The oldest brother, who is no longer with us, but Randy, named after A. Philip Randolph, the organizer of the March on Washington. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting names to to live by. Wow, lots of history. So I'll ask you a little bit about yourself later. But speaking of history, let's talk about Zora Neale Hurston. She's so Florida. She's like one of Florida's favorite daughters. For people who are uninitiated, can you just give us a little bit of background on her? When and where did she live? And um, what was her work all about? So Zora Neale Hurston was originally born actually in Alabama. And then her family, her father was a minister you know, back in the day, a lot of ministers, no matter what their ethnicities were, they usually didn't have a congregation that was big enough to support the minister and his family. So he was itinerant minister. So he moved the family to uh, Eatonville. And that was one of the original all black townships, similar to what people would know uh, about Tulsa, Oklahoma, which recently came out, you know, during the, the last the, the last election cycle. So Eatonville was one of these places that attracted a lot of um, educated and I would say race conscious black folk. So he moved his family from Alabama to Eatonville and Zara grew up there since her early years, you know, maybe four or five years old. And she was one of these kids that was really smart early on. And 
had a thriving life in which she really didn't experience racism because she was in this all-black township that had a black mayor and everybody in the town, African-American. A lot of people worked for white folks in other communities, but for the most part, they were self-sufficient. And she grew up in that type of environment with a lot of nurturing, a lot of support. Wow. How was her work regarded during her lifetime because she was a writer and an anthropologist. Was she, you know, Zora with a capital Z that we think of today? Or was she just like Zora from the block? You know, she had a, uh, it's kind of an up and down experience in terms of Zora. Uh, One of the downs was that her mother died when she was a mere teenager and her family her, her father remarried and remarried a woman that wasn't that much older than her. You know, say, say Zora's 15 or so. The father remarries a woman that might have been like 19. He was maybe 20 years her, her senior. And Zora never took to the stepmother that came in. They fought like cats and dogs. And essentially, Zora was put out of the house because the stepmother never embraced her. She also went to school in Jacksonville, Florida, and she went to a very prestigious African-American operated school. Forgive me, I cannot remember the name of the school, but what was unique about the school is that it also had people like the Johnsons, uh, James Weldon Johnson and his brother, the people who went on to write Lift Every Voice and Sing. He was an editor for The Crisis. That was the magazine for NAACP. So there's a lot of very successful, bright, almost like a Howard University where the who's who came out of Howard University, where the who's who came out of this high school in Jacksonville. It was a boarding school. So she was there. And as her father uh, remarried, in many ways, he just cut support for Zora. And eventually she was put out of the school. Very precarious situation in which she came back and had to fend for herself and started her career by moving to New York. And she lived a very uh, difficult life. So she was very active and she was writing, but she had to depend on, um, you know, all white folks to really support her. She went to uh, college in New York and she started writing. She eventually, during the Great Depression, was hired by the government, the WPA project, which was a project which we could really use now, by the way, to help. A struggling artist. And so she was hired to do stories and do the history. So she was trained in college as an anthropologist. And when she was hired by the WPA, she came back to Florida to collect the history and the oral history of folks in, in Florida. But not only Florida, you see some of Georgia, some of South Carolina, and she spent a lot of time in Louisiana, particularly around New Orleans. So it's, it's all this field work she did during that time that led to the books that she would write later, like Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is the most famous one. But she she wrote a plethora of of really good stuff in all different genres. So it's not just anthropology, it's short stories, it's novels, it's poetry, even theater, a lot of these things. But again, just one of these people where she's not really discovered until long after she dies. Like one of the things that's interesting about her is it is Alice Walker who rediscovers Zora Neale Hurston. And by the time that she realizes this, you know, this woman has created all this body of work. I mean, Zora, put it this way, when Zora dies, 
she's working as a domestic servant in Florida. In very many ways, she's like some of the people we know, like Picasso, who during their lifetime, did they get the accolades they deserve? No, it's only many years later that people recognize her. But I, I will say she is one of the writers of the Harlem Renaissance period during that time period. And so if you look in some of that, the work and writers of the Harlem Renaissance, people like um, County Cullen or Langston Hughes, you will hear in their in their writings and in their commentaries talk about Zora Neale Hurston. So they these people who were well-known and famous at that time recognize her brilliance. But most of us don't know about it until decades and decades later. Wow. We could never cover all of her works, but just maybe some that stand out to you. What role did food play in her life and in some of her work? So what's interesting about Zora and a lot of folks that I have studied. So I've been teaching this course called Food in the African-American Canon. I've been teaching this course maybe five years now. And the books that are in the course, I'll give you some of them. Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by James Weldon Johnson, who I mentioned earlier. You have uh, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. You have Zorno Hurston's Your Eyes Are Watching God. Just, just a number of books. Frederick Douglass's Autobiography. And the theme that comes out in Zora, as it does with the rest of the books I used in this class, is that folks who were starving artists, as it were, starving creatives, food organically, forget, pardon the pun, but I can't say it any other way, but food organically works their way into what they publish and what they write about. Um, I, I One time, I was a, a very desperate college student, more out of pride, not wanting to call back home and ask for help more than anything else. But I remember those times of studying and writing and not having a lot to eat. And it definitely works its way into, you know, the kind of research and writing I do. And you see it in her work. So throughout Your Eyes Are Watching God, there are these food tropes that are out there and these stories that she collects from, you know, many of the, the black workers that are in the Everglades or, workers who are on these uh, plantations throughout Florida. It's just, it's just in there. Even in the letters that she's writing back to um, her white supporters in New York, the letters are talking about her struggles. She's asking for money. She she's, uh, talks about the garden that she's keeping, her subsistence gardens to keep food in her stomach. Um, she had this stomach problem that she struggled with throughout her life that she mentions, even when she's collecting some of the folklore, she's collecting information on what I call food pharmacies, one of the chapters I have in the book, and where she's studying these African-American elders who have a knowledge of herbs and medicine, and she's studying them. But in many ways, I think this is a way for her to find a less expensive way for her to deal with her own uh, stomach infirmities. So it's, it's, it's throughout her work. And one of the, you know, so I mentioned their eyes are watching God, but she also published her own autobiography. And I would encourage your listeners to get it. It covers from A to Z. It covers her time, not only here in the United States as a WPA worker, but research she did over in Jamaica, in Haiti, and a lot of the work that she did as a researcher over in Honduras. So it's, it's a vast array of information that covers the time of her work, which is roughly the 1920s through the 1940s. 
Oh, wow. Lots of good stuff to dive into there. I'm flipping through the book and you have tons of photos, which are absolutely beautiful. And also recipes. Some of these recipes, the ingredient list is like four words. And then the the procedure is, you know, another 300 words. So like on page 18, you have the collard green recipe. The ingredients are collard greens and bacon. On page 21, you have a recipe for current preserves. The ingredients are currants and sugar. And then you go into a lot of detail about the technique. So why were the recipes so simple, just ingredient wise? And what does that say about, you know, the time period and also the technique? Because if you're only using two ingredients, there's no room for error. Great question. First of all, it speaks to a couple different things that, you know, when you're talking about recipes, 1910, 1920s, what I did was based on the experience of my first book, Hagenheim, and it came out in 2008. When I, and I went, when I was on book tours, people would ask me some really interesting questions during the Q&A, and one of them was, where are the recipes? And I didn't realize that a lot of the people who were reading my work were people who just love to cook, chefs or wannabe chefs, and just want to know more about it. So I, I learned a valuable lesson with that first book, that uh, every book after that, has included recipes, but I also found that recipes like images is a way of opening up the person you're studying or the time period you're studying or the region you're studying. It just gives you, it's a window into so many different things. And so one of the things that the simplistic recipes is a window into is that a lot of people were not literate, uh, particularly historically in the African-American community and working class communities. You, you weren't a lot of people that were literate. So you would have basic recipes, but also most kids, particularly female women, were acculturated to your job was to learn how to cook, to spend time supporting your elders in the kitchen. And they would teach you how to measure things by how much was in your hand or how, you know, how long um, your finger was and you cut it this size or you had that much in there. So a lot of these things were oral histories passed down and then later put into recipe formats. So it's, it's the assumption is everybody knows this. So I don't need to give a whole lot of detail. That's one of the things you find with those recipes. And then the other thing you find is that a lot of these recipes were originally the intellectual property of black women, but it would be white women who would then take them and publish them and take full credit for them. So it is white women interpreting the recipe that maybe a domestic servant that worked for that person has shared orally. And then that person creates this written text that we now have. I never thought about that. So then where did you find the recipes? And how did you even choose? Like you've got collard greens in here, you've got fried chicken in here. You could ask 10 people and they would give you 10 different recipes. So how did you choose the ones to include in the book that really represented Zora Neale Hurston's time? So my framework has been to look at the individual and look at the text or the oral history that was in turned into text and see what they're talking about. And so you see me writing recipes right out of her autobiography or one of her books. And she's actually talking about this. It may be in passing. For example, many people will know the scene in their eyes while watching God of Jody, who is the store owner. And he's got this country store in Eatonville. And that's the center of life for the, the main characters in there. The scene of when men and women are courting, I guess a lot of us younger folks don't know that term, but 
you see somebody you like and you're trying to get that number, put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Text me your digits. (laughs) When they're courting, one of the things they would do is, you know, people talk about courting now. I was just watching a TV show the other day and they had a certain chocolate company that when you're courting a woman, you buy this box of chocolates and you're saying, wow, you know, this is a real important person. Well, back then, an item that you would buy at a store would be actually a pickled pig's feet. That would be like, <laughs> baby, I like you. That yes. would oh. not work on me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at really these descriptions of the courting and the cutting up that would happen as the girl walked by and the guys would be, you know, in a, in a polite way, giving her all these kind of accolades and talking about, I love you so much, I would buy you know, a dozen pickled pig feet or whatever. So you see me, the recipes, you see me in many ways rifting off of what's being discussed in the text. So I'm not arbitrarily put in a, a collard green recipe. And if you look at the stanzas or the paragraphs before that, this is maybe Zora talking about what her mother grew in her garden. Her mother had this enormous garden her birth mom and she would be talking about it and she'd be talking about how independent the family was and most of what they came out of the garden so then you see me going to a recipe based on one of those food plants in the garden and talking about it now how how i decide what recipe i want a recipe that's closest geographically to where eatonville is or florida or the county they're from and i want a recipe that's from the time period when zora either either is is born or I can figure around the time period when she's talking and she self-identifies herself as say 15. And so I'm looking, I know her date of birth is late 19th century. And then I'm looking for a recipe from the state of Florida around that same time period. So there's, as my mother would say, there's a method to my madness. Mm-hmm. Very cool. It really brings the recipes and then the black and white archival photos that you have in the book, they really bring it to life. Like she's not a character in one of her own novels, she's a real person. So that's pretty amazing. Can you tell me about, and sorry if you hear my kid in the background, but can you tell me about uh, the three M's you mentioned on page 26, which were kind of like the most important food groups during her time? Yeah, meat, meal, and molasses. So those are the three M's that you could really tell somebody's economic status. So, you know, so if somebody had a uh, diet that was a simple meat and that meat always meant pork. That's really what it meant. Meal being cornmeal. And again, these are things that uh, most people who were sharecroppers and many African-Americans that were not economically independent or owned their own farms, worked as sharecroppers or tenant farmers, they are buying salt pork, fat back is another term we use for it. And they're buying cornmeal from the corner store that more often than not, that store is owned and operated by the same person whose land you're working on as a sharecropper. So meat, meal, and the molasses was the last one. So these became the staples for poor people throughout the South, particularly African-American people, but poor people in general. And they're one of these things that you see from the antebellum period that uh, enslaved people received as rations all the way through the post-Civil War people when people began to work in in a period of what we call debt peanage, where you were constantly and debt to the landlord that you work with. And the only thing you could afford to feed you and your family were these three M's that we're talking about. Hmm. I mean, that doesn't sound like a bad meal, though, does it? Every single day, seven days a week. Well. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you could throw in, you know, every once in a while, some collard greens or things like that, it wouldn't be so bad. But 
I mean, every single day. It, it's funny because I'm looking at what's in my refrigerator now, that we have all kinds of food in there. Yet my 15 and 18 will open the refrigerator, particularly the 15, I'm going to pick on her right now and go, there's nothing to eat. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, well, if we took you back in this time with the three M's, then you would have something to say. <laughs> but that's not the case with most of us today. Yeah, my four-year-old, if we're out of popsicles, then there's nothing to eat in the house. Right, so. exactly. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the cult of poisoning on page 71. Hurston writes about this. It also shows up in their eyes. We're watching God. But can you explain what the cult of poisoning is? A lot of this has to do with, with folk law, folk medicine. And this goes all the way back to primary sources I see on, in West and Central Africa, where most people of African descent came from. You see this throughout there. You see this in the Caribbean, uh, that if you do somebody wrong, the repercussion could be a poisoning. So it's a common trope that you see throughout the African diaspora. And it's, it's based on this historical tradition of what we call the weapons of the weak, that when you are not as strong as somebody else, you're not as politically strong as somebody else, you have a knowledge of these, going back to those herbs I talked about, that if you, you put things, you mix them the wrong way, you can get people back. So you see this in their eyes. We're watching God in which the husband who was the mayor of the town is not treating his wife well. And he begins to grow apart from his wife and take the, um, the wisdom or the counsel of another woman, an older woman. And the, one of the first things the other woman says is be careful that your wife may poison you. So as he gets sick, he's getting sicker and sicker. And he thinks it's his wife. It's not his wife. He's sick from his own, you know, greedy poison of the way he treats people. But he begins to think it's his wife. So that's just like a common trope that you see throughout African-American culture and literature, this whole idea of uh, the fear of being poisoned. Yeah, she writes, and then you quote her on page 71, in the United States, great masses of young Negro children are taught to eat and drink nowhere except at home. There's the gravest suspicion of unsolicited foods. And you know what's interesting, just thinking about African-American life today, with good reason, there is like a mistrust of sometimes the medical community. <laughs> People just don't trust anything that doesn't come from home. I think it's it's interesting that... I have some unnamed uh, family members, <laughs> and when they hear this, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> will will not eat over certain people's houses. Mm -hmm. Will not eat from back when we had uh, those kind of restaurants that would have a uh, salad bar. Just would not trust other people eating from the salad bar. You know, it's so funny that we're talking about this. I am reading right now. I think it's probably. The second time. But, you know, when you read a book the first time, you don't have the same knowledge you do the second time. So mm -hmm. I'm reading Richard Wright, who is a contemporary of Zorno Hurston, another Harlem Renaissance figure. And I'm reading his book, Black Boy. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that he actually he talks about working when he first migrates from Tennessee to Chicago. He's working in this restaurant on the south side of Chicago. And he's a busboy. And he notices the white cook in the restaurant cooking the food and then spitting in the actual pots that he's cooking from. I mean, this is, I mean, just reading this. Oh, the other day. That's like everyone's worst I, nightmare. <laughs> yes. 
Or the other thing you find during the period of Jim Crow, so my book, How Can Harmony, has a chapter called Eating Jim Crow. One of the ways that I just thought was so crazy about Jim Crow segregation in Florida and other parts of the world is you weren't good enough to eat in the restaurants, but you're good enough to work in there and cook the food. Right. <laughs> you know, for folks. But one of the things that Black folks did when you were nasty to them or physically or whatever abusive, the Black folks, like, you know, the I'm sure you remember the scene from that famous movie of The Pie, and we won't talk too much about it. Oh, yeah, the, um, the Help. The Help. <laughs> that this, was, I, this is not uncommon. I've seen it in primary sources. Now, that, that takes this theme to a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. But spitting in the food to people who are abusive to you who are white supremacists. This was like a common theme that I I saw in my research. So this whole idea of where can you eat? But again, I have relatives from Florida, by the way, who will not eat in certain people's houses or certain restaurants. And this whole idea is this person's kitchen clean enough for you to eat. So you're invited to this person's house and you go look in the kitchen. If the kitchen looks good enough, then you're going to eat. Otherwise, you find some excuse why you can't eat the food. Oh, yeah. That's my dad. I'll I'll throw him under the bus. <laughs> my dad is in that category. Well, you can do that. I can't say this to the, about the other folks. You know I want to say it so bad. But that's so cool about Zora Neale Hurston because she's she's putting down on paper these things that people say and do every day without even thinking about it. And it's like she was able to have an appreciation during her own time for the customs of her people, which I think is pretty unique. Um, We have to talk about fried chicken. (laughs) How, why was fried chicken so important? How did it contribute to black folks' economic mobility? So first of all, the importance of fried chicken as a culinary treat goes back again to Western Central Africa, where we as a people grew up where it was guinea hens that would be the poultry that we consume there, the guinea hens. The chickens that we eat now originate from Asia and make their way across continents to eventually to the Americas. But we grew up, and you can see this throughout uh, primary sources on West and Central Africa, on guinea hens, which is just a type of poultry. And they were used for special occasions. What do I mean by special occasions? Well, you would slaughter a hen when you were having a child born or when somebody died or when somebody was going to be become a titled person. There's a stratification within African societies where there are common people and they're elites. Well, to become an elite, sometimes you have to offer up or provide a certain, almost like a payment to join this fraternity or sorority. And oftentimes that would be a guinea hen. And very often it would be, you see this kind of in Haitian culture and religion, it would have to be a white hen. So this whole theme of the importance of poultry and frying them is old. It goes all the way back to to that time period. And it continues in the antebellum period as people come over and they're enslaved. It's one of the few things that folks can actually raise while in captivity and on their free day, which in most slave societies, like in a place like the state of Florida, the free day was Sunday. So you would raise hogs, we talked about meat you know, in the meal, raise hogs, raise chicken. They were inexpensive to, to raise, easy to raise. And most often you would sell them when they got to the full size on market days, or they were saved for special occasions. So if you were going to have a 
a serious meal or a celebration meal like somebody being born or somebody being married or Christmas time, you would be making um, fried chicken. It's also one of those one pot meals that if you're an enslaved person, you don't have all these different things. You could get access to lard to fry it from the pigs that you would have. And one pots, most people in their slave quarters would have one pot and they would have you know, wooden utensils. So it was something that you could you could make pretty easy, get access to the salt and get access to pepper, which would, you know, most of the time the only uh, kind of spices we used you know, that you could make it. It's also served as a revenue generator for many women after slavery. I have these photos of women at train depots. So anywhere there's a train depot, the train would pull in and it would stop as people got on and off. And these women would be carrying trays of fried chicken, uh, pies and other things that would make, but largely fried chicken. And they would be walking along the train and people would open their windows and buy them. You also see the fried chicken when people are traveling. So I mentioned James Weldon Johnson and his brother, they both went to Clark University in Atlanta. And in their autobiography, they talk about traveling from Jacksonville, their hometown, to Atlanta. And their parents packed this shoebox. And in that shoebox is typically fried chicken. It's uh, some salt and pepper. It, it would be some pound cake or another slice of cake or something. But fried chicken is one of those things that traveled pretty well. And why did they have it in a shoebox? Because Jim Crow segregation would make it pretty humiliating to try to go up to a window at a, a train stop and buy something. It just wasn't worth the humiliation. So parents got in the habit of packing these shoe boxes that almost always had fried chicken in it. How do you feel about that? Because there's, you know, the stereotype that black people love fried chicken, but it did play a very important role. There's no doubt. And there are food stereotypes that every culture and society has, every ethnic group has. So when I when I teach this course, uh, Food in the African-American Canada, we talk about this, you know, in my class here at Babson, I have students from around the world. I mean, not just around the country, but around the world. And when we get into this topic, because this comes up in the book, The Invisible Man, if you read that book, there's a scene of the man selling yams in Harlem. And the main character, The Invisible Man, is from the Deep South. Uh, it's not said if it's Florida or Georgia, but it's probably something like that. And he fights this stereotype when he smells these cooking yams on a winter day in, on, the, on the street corner in, on Harlem. He fights the desire for them. You know, so there's, there's these stereotypes that are rooted in things that are true. But, you know, black folks love fried chicken. White folks, tell me, tell me a Southerner, unless you're vegetarian, that don't like fried chicken. And if you say you don't, I'm going to ask for your Southern ID card. You're lying. <laughs> Look at the fast food industry now. What is it made up? Are people selling a staple that African-American depended on to make money on the side as their sidekicks. Now they're, they're restaurants, Popeyes, you know, all these different industries, it's fried chicken. Okay, we talked about fried chicken. Let's talk about barbecue. You mentioned in the book that Hurston would attend some barbecues during her field work, which is a pretty sweet gig. It's like, oh no, guys, this is research. I have to sample your barbecue because I'm gonna be writing about it. What was different about barbecues during her time? You say it wasn't just a family event, but it was a community event. Without a doubt. So if you look at their eyes were watching God, the very first scene, Jody, who is married to Janie, the, you know, Janie's the main character in the book, and Jody is the mayor. 
when the town is a is has incorporated and is set up and it is about to have street lights for the first time in the history uh, you know of, of this community how do they celebrate they celebrate by the mayor offering a hog for a community-wide barbecue a barbecue that's going to take its whole hog and, and that's the thing you'll see what's distinctive about barbecue in say florida versus north carolina versus texas is the type of meat that's barbecued how is it barbecued is it is it whole or is it cut up you know what part of the animal is considered the the, the greatest delicacy you know these are geographical differences but they're definitely this community barbecue again i have to take us back to uh, west and central africa and people of african descent have been barbecuing for millennial i mean we came here with that skill throughout the antebellum south you will see who are the pit masters at these holiday uh, regional barbecues in which one slave owner would host the holiday meal and owners and enslaved folks would come in wagon, wagons and all kinds of means of transportation to this one plantation. And what was the center of that holiday meal, particularly a Christmas meal? It was a barbecue. And who are the pitmasters? There are enslaved people who are the ones who, even on the weekends when they have their free time, they hire themselves out. If you go back and you look at 12 Years a Slave, this is the story of Solomon Northall, and this story takes place in Louisiana. It talks about black folks who hire themselves out. These are enslaved people, but their masters and people who own them take pride in the fact that the enslaved person they own is the best fiddler in town or best fiddler in a county. And he goes out and he makes extra money playing the fiddle. A pit master on his plantation is one of the best in the county and he hires himself out. So he makes a certain amount of money barbecuing a whole hog or whatever it is and gives a certain amount back to the masters and pockets the rest. But this tradition continues. So even I'm looking at um, political barbecues that happen throughout the state of Florida for another project I'm working on. And you will see these pictures from 1895, 1920, 1930s. Now, this is Jim Crow, Florida. And everybody in the picture is white except for the pit master. So the pit master, the one who is in charge, everybody defers to this person who outside of that scene of a barbecue does not hold much power. But when you get in the context of these large political rallies in which the center of those rallies are are free food and the opportunity to talk to these potential voters, the person who is in charge is that black man at this barbecue. It's a really interesting part of Southern culture and life. I never thought about that. Okay, I wish I could talk to you all day, but I can't. So let me ask you, how did you become interested in this topic of Zora Neale Hurston's food life? You're you're a professor in Boston. Are you from Florida? Do you have any connection to Eatonville? No, I am from the Hudson Valley of New York. On my maternal side of the family, our family is from uh, Windsor, North Carolina. On the paternal side, our family is from Virginia, not far from Charlottesville. And, you know, I, so I grew up with parents who spent their summers in the South with their grandparents. Both of my grandparents on either side of my family are Southerners and spending just about every Sunday visiting one grandparent's house, eating out of that Southern kitchen. 
and going to the other grandparents' house, eating at the Southern Kitchen, spending holidays with these people. So though I was born in New York and raised in New York, very much felt like uh, I was born in the South just because of my grandparents both had heavy accents and everything, you know, uh, my in-laws, um, my mother-in-law law is from Florida. Spent a lot of time with her. She's a phenomenal cook. Um, my father-in-law is from from Memphis. So you know, I think every African American, even in a place like Boston or New York, where I'm from, we all have Southern roots, and it's, you don't have to go back that far to to find these Southern roots. In terms of this particular topic, Missourino Hurston, I first came across her when I was teaching an African-American history class. And I started migrating from just doing African-American history to becoming focused and specializing in food. So as I looked at the course I taught on African-American history, I was every year making it more a food course, so African-American history and food. And as I were, was looking for text, I knew about this book. Now, now here's a funny story is that I, you know, I told you my name, named after Frederick Douglass and my other brother, Marshall, and my brother, Randy. So we grew up in this house with these two African-American parents who back then you would call them race people. It didn't mean you were racist. It means you were people who were serious about knowing and understanding your culture and passing it down onto your kids. So my mom had a terrific uh, book collection on African-American history uh, not only fiction, but nonfiction. And I didn't want anything to do with it. You know, I was a young kid playing sports. That's all I cared about. But as I was going through graduate school, when I would come home on vacation, I started looking at her books. I was like, good, wow. This woman's got all these terrific books. So I, when I first graduated from undergrad, I was home, didn't have to read books. So now I started reading books. Of course. And one of the first books I read was Their Eyes Were Watching God. And as I thought about the, that book, and I'm redoing my syllabus for my class. I said, oh, wow, I think this would be great to expose the students to Zorno Hurston. So as I'm reading the book, I'm like, wow, this stuff's got a lot of stuff in it. Then I go write the first book in 2008. You know, research started in 2000 uh, for the book Hog and Hominy. And I started just looking through all the literature and what could I find about food and Zora's Zora Neale Hurston's book, The Eyes Were Watching God, was one of the best. There's many of them. It was one of the best in terms of food content. So I just, my mom was a real strong black woman. My wife was a real strong black woman. It probably has something to do with that. But I just thought the way she traveled, collected stories, it resonated a lot with me and how I do research. I, I loved it when I, as a teacher, you probably can tell by this interview, I love to tell stories. And that's what Zora did. She was, a, she was a master collector of stories and storyteller. What do you think are the lessons for us today? I mean, it was so great. I actually read your book on vacation because it was that enjoyable. What are the lessons that we can take with us today about her work and about how she ate and just society during her time? I think there's a number of lessons that you can take. The fact that Zora came from a family of black elites where everybody had an education. She was fortunate enough to have a college education. You know, I think that despite the cast that she was in and being a member of the African-American cast, she was one of the elites within that cast, but she did not consider herself better than 
working class folks. And so she had no problem going into some of these communities, going into some of these juke joints and other places that most dignified, or as my father would say, highfalutin black folks would not go. She went there and she had no problem. And she had the ability to win their confidence when she went there. And she also appreciated the folk wisdom that they had. She knew these people were very humble, but she understood and appreciated the culture that, that, that they had. And I think that's one of the things that we need to do is to consider you can learn something from everybody. And there's, there's, you, you can't privilege reading over, over storytelling. You can learn just as much from a storyteller as you can from somebody who's a scholar. So I think that's one of the things. The other thing is that she shows the strategy for surviving with very little is what's my definition of soul is surviving hard times and making it look easy. I mean, she learned from her own experience and from the people she studied how to survive herself, how to take care of herself. And certainly during this COVID time, there are so many of us that have to turn to different resources that are no longer there for us. There are pharmacies, there are stores that are no longer there. Some of us, you know, we don't have the same income we had before. Many of us need to turn to subsistence gardens that you have yards, you have even decks where you could create, uh, start planting food that you could eat from there yourself. The things that she teaches people about what you can grow and is available. Like one of the things that's on my bucket list right now is to learn how to forage for food. That's something I always wanted to do to be able to know, you know what mushrooms are edible and not edible. Zora talks about people who do that. And I think the knowledge that she has of the natural and what creation has out there, it's like living in, in the Garden of Eden when you follow her around and see what she's learning. Yeah, I would have to bring my phone with me so I knew what I could eat and what would kill me. <laughs> was she a good cook? Do you think? Uh, the impression I got was yes. A matter of fact, so I'm glad you asked me that. When she was in New York and she was struggling for ways to pay her college tuition and pay rent, she literally wrote up a business plan for opening her own restaurant. I remember that. And uh, I, I can't remember if she's writing. I don't know who was she writing back to somebody in family or maybe one of her sponsors, but she literally talks about this restaurant she's going to open up. So the impression I got was yes. And when she had arguments with some people, which she regularly, you know, she's quite opinionated. She would often make up with the people by sending them a cake. Oh, that always works. (laughs) Just go straight to their stomach. Dr. Fred (laughs) Opie, thank you so much. It was just fascinating to talk to you. Now I have to go reread all of Zora Neale Hurston's books. Thank you for having me. This was uh, a lot of fun. I, you know, I wrote the book a while ago, but it's still fresh in my mind. It's, and all I had to do is have you ask some questions and it just triggered all these thoughts and stories from writing that book. Dr. Fred Opie is a professor at Babson College and the author of many books, including Zora Neale Hurston on Florida Food, Recipes, Remedies, and Simple Pleasures. The book was published in 2015, but you can still get your hands on a copy today. You can find Dr. Opie's historically accurate, deceptively simple recipes for fried chicken and collard greens on our website, thezestpodcast.com. 
I'm Delia Colon. I produce The Zest with help from Cheyenne Jaglau and Mark Hayes. Copyright 2021 WUSF Public Media.